on, on this Memorial Day weekend, it's always a, a wonderful time to um, reflect on our freedom and to, to thank those who have given their lives for that freedom. You know, we can never repay uh, those who have made, um, paid the ultimate price, but we can remember them. And so that's what we do on this Memorial Day weekend. I want to encourage you to pull out your message notes uh, this morning, it being Memorial Day weekend. I thought it would be uh, fitting to talk about the ultimate sacrifice that was paid for us. Six hours that changed history started on that Good Friday over 2,000 years ago. The gospel writer Mark says that Jesus was crucified at nine in the morning. The gospel writer Matthew says that Jesus spoke his final words at 3 p.m. For six hours, Jesus endured the horrors of the cross for you. The last week of Jesus' life, it's the week of his passion or his passion week. On that Thursday night, after he gathered in an upper room with his disciples, um, after they celebrated the Passover meal, uh, remembering God's freedom, bringing uh, their forefathers out of slavery, out of Egypt, uh, the Gospels tell us that they make their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. The landscape is dotted with olive trees. It's a beautiful area. And there Jesus prays to his Father, and he knew that the cross was only hours away. He experienced the cross emotionally, physically, spiritually, and psychologically before he ever was nailed to the cross. He experienced deep distress and sorrow to the point of him sweating drops of blood. Judas, one of the twelve, brings a mob of religious leaders and soldiers and arrests Jesus, basically betrays him for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus is then taken to Annas' house, the former high priest. He's interrogated, and he is struck in the face, I think, multiple times. Caiaphas, he's then brought to Caiaphas' house, the current high priest. He's interrogated, he's beaten, he's blindfolded, and... um, they say that he is blasphemed. There's an angry mob that basically pounded his face all night. The Bible says when, when day came, so sunrise, he is then brought to the Sanhedrin. He's questioned at length. They ask him repeatedly, are you the Christ? Jesus claims to be the Messiah. Here's what he does. He quotes the prophet Daniel. And he applies Daniel's title, son of man, to himself. He basically says, I am the son of God. He's then sent to Pilate where there's false accusations made made towards him. Pilate sends Jesus to Herod. Herod is glad to see him because Herod has heard about Jesus. He's heard about the miracles and all these things, but he's never seen him face to face. The soldiers dress him up as a king and they mock him. And then Herod sends him back to Pilate where he is flogged and scourged, not once, but twice. The scourging 
most men would die from this torture. The first time he was scourged, the soldiers took a crown of thorns and they twisted it on his head. Um, blood drops flowing off of, off his face. They took a purple robe and they placed it on him and they, they mocked him and they, they said, Hail, King of the Jews, and, and they struck him in the face. The second time he was scourged was after Pilate sentenced him to be crucified. Now you have to understand, scourging was a very intense thing. He, he, was, uh, he was stripped of the purple robe off of him. At this point, most likely, maybe even naked completely. He's tied to a post. He's brutally beaten. There's a, a whip called a, a flagellum, a, a wooden handle with leather straps that had pieces of love, like metal and bones that, um, that would tenderize the flesh, expose tissue and muscles and, or, and organs. The beatings were so vicious, sometimes they were fatal. He's then brought to the Praetorium, the Antonio Fortress. Um, there, the purple robe, this military cloak was placed on him, crown of thorns. They saluted him as king. They struck him on the head with a reed. They spit on him. They stripped him of the purple robe, and they put his own clothes back on him. And then, at this moment, he's led out to be crucified. He's experienced the horrors of the cross before ever going to the cross. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. In that moment, you see his humanity. He's crying out to his father. He's crying out to God. The father and the son, before uh, the creation of the world, they made an agreement. It's the only way I can think, think about it. They made an agreement between the father and the son that the son would be sent. The son would be obedient to the father. The, the son would break into our world and live this perfect sinless life but be crucified. Jesus said, if you are willing, remove this cup. What, what, what is he talking about there? The cup is the wrath of God poured out against the sins of humanity. Every one of your sins was in the cup. When you look at the symbolism of, of the cup in the Old Testament, it was always pointing to wrath, judgment. Jesus was saying, Father, if you're willing, remove your wrath, the fury of your wrath against the sin of humanity. Remove that from me. I, 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 remove that so I don't have to uh, endure that. I don't have to bear that. I don't have to drink that. He's been beaten all night. He's bruised and bloody. He's flogged, scourged twice. Isaiah 52, 14 says, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond, beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. The beatings and floggings were so bad, they couldn't even recognize him. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, his own family wouldn't be able to recognize him. We know that there were ladies and John and Peter, the disciples, who stood at a distance at the cross. They leave the praetorium and they go to Golgotha, Aramaic, for the place of a skull. It literally is a skull-shaped hill. Many of you have probably seen pictures of it, right? Maybe in a Bible study, in, in a study Bible book, or, or in a different book. I've seen it with my own eyes. It looks like a skull. 
the place of crucifixion. The gospel writer tells us, John tells us that Jesus bore his own cross. So after being scourged twice, they put a 200-pound beam across his back. With a normal execution, they would attach four Roman soldiers to someone who was going to be crucified. And the Roman soldiers would escort uh, a prisoner through the crowds and through the streets. They would put a placard bearing the prisoner's indictment. And this placard was often worn around someone's neck. The gospel writer John says that the placard was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. Three languages. Greek universal language in the empire, Aramaic, language of Palestine, Latin, official language of Rome. Here's why they did that. So that everyone who saw Jesus, everyone who read the placard, knew exactly who this man was and who his claims were. What his claims were. All four gospels are slightly different, but all agree with Mark, the title, the king of the Jews. Full inscription, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Let's pick up in Luke chapter 23, verse 26, it says, as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. So here's this man, Simon of Cyrene, um, Cyrene, modern day Libya. He's coming in from the country. He's making his way to Jerusalem. He's minding his own business. We know that it, it's uh, the, the, the Passion Week, the last week of Jesus' life. People are flooding into Jerusalem, uh, bringing uh, uh, sacrificial lambs for the Day of Atonement. And he is assigned to carry Jesus' cross. Remember what Jesus said in the Gospels? He said, if you want to be my disciple, the word disciple is a, a learner, a follower. If you want to be a follower of me, if you want to learn from me, he said, take up your cross and follow me. Simon was the very first person to do that. I believe that Simon became a Christian, and here's why. The gospel writer tells us that Simon had two sons by the name of Alexander and Rufus. The apostle Paul, at the end of Romans, chapter 16, verse 13, he mentions Rufus and his mother, who's most likely a leader in the church at Rome. So I just want you to think about this for a moment. It's amazing how God moves and works in our lives. Right? When you least expect it, God breaks through. When you least expect it, God does something big. You're encountered. You encounter Christ, right? You encounter who he is, or he encounters you, right? And he draws you to himself. And, 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 and that's his grace, and that's his mercy. Here's this guy minding his own business, coming in from the country. He's told to carry the crossbeam. He does. And I think Simon Cyrene becomes a believer, he left a, a generational legacy, a legacy of faith to his children. Parents, you got children? That is the highest calling that you have. There's no greater calling. There's no greater responsibility to, than to pass your faith down, right? You are running with the spiritual baton of faith, right? You're in the race, and you got little kids running behind you. And, and listen, when you're done finishing that race, make sure that you hand that baton off. Make sure you pass that off. You give that to your kids. When you're in a, in a race with a relay race and there's batons involved, there, 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 there has to be timing and strategy and trust and, and you gotta hand it off at the right time. And listen, with your kids, hand off the baton of faith. You see it in the Old Testament. 
You know, time and time and time again, they didn't pass down their faith. They didn't tell the next generation about all that God had done for them. Pass your faith down. Leave a general, generational legacy. Change your family tree by the grace of God. By the grace of God. Only God can do that. But you can be used as a tool, as an instrument, right, to further the gospel and, and, and to change generations to come. You know, I'm reminded of, um, of Ananias. Um, and, and, and Ananias was, was called to go to Saul, who was blinded, right, for like three days. Ananias, we know nothing really about this guy. I'm not talking about the Ananias, his wife, they, they, they kept back money, right? I'm not talking about those people. I'm talking about another Ananias. We don't really know anything about him, but here's what we do know. He touched the ages. He was willing to be used by God, and he was used in such a way where because of his obedience and his faith, Saul became Paul, who wrote half the New Testament, who was a missionary, a church planner, an evangelist, and, and, and Ananias touched the ages because you're here because you know Christ. You just don't know what God can do in your life. You don't know how God can, how God can use you to impact the next generation. Luke 23, 27 says, And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. Now, there's no indication that these women are believers. They could be professional mourners. We, we don't know. They could be believers. Maybe they are. Look what Jesus says to them, 28 to 31. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. I mean, he is carrying the cross beam to Golgotha, and he, he's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about them. Don't weep for me. Weep for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? When Jesus said, Don't weep for me, weep for yourselves and for your children, what's he talking about? He's giving a prophetic word here. He's, he is telling them of like future destruction. We know that this is a prophetic word. It was fulfilled in 70 AD. There was judgment on the nation of Israel. Rome came in, they ransacked the city, they, they tore down the gates and the walls and they burned the city and I think they raped the women and they, they killed people. And Jesus said, listen, this is what's coming. Even I mean, hours before the cross, Jesus was warning the people about what God was going to do and what Rome was going to do. Just putting a spotlight on, on him being God, him being all-knowing. Verses 32 to 33 of Luke chapter 23, it says, Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. You know, Golgotha. Place of a skull, skull shape. No mention, they're really, <coughs> in the Gospels, there's, there's no mention that he died on a hill. We know that, that uh, Golgotha, um, you could see it above this little um, kind of skull-shaped, you know, image in the cleft of the rock. Above it today, it, there's a Muslim cemetery. But back in the day, people were crucified at eye level. So they were crucified on the streets. So here we have Jesus being crucified at Golgotha in between criminals. Mark says that he was numbered among the transgressors. Now there's two locations for the crucifixion. One is Gordon's Calvary, 
named after the man who discovered it. The other site is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Now, if you know, I was in Israel years ago, and I think that the Bible says that he was um, crucified outside the gate. I think it was outside of Damascus Gate, outside of the city, and there was a, a, a tomb and a garden nearby. John tells us that. Well, that has to be Golgotha. That has to be Gordon's Calvary. That's where Jesus was, was crucified, on, on, on the northern side of the city. The, 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 uh, the traditional site, uh, Church of the Holy Sepulchre, is more south. Now, being in Israel and going to the traditional site, people treat it like it's like a holy, it's a holy site, right? It's, it's, it's like there's, there's something like uh, magical and spiritual about it. There's a, a, a slab of concrete that people literally, they're weeping on. I mean, tears are flowing. They're kissing the concrete because they believe that this piece of slab is where Jesus' body was, was prepared for burial. But here's the deal, though. I find it interesting. You know why like, we don't really know the tomb that Jesus came back from the dead from? is because God doesn't want us to go to the tomb and worship the tomb. Right? God wants us to worship Jesus. So it's not about some holy site. It's about worshiping Jesus and, and what he has done for us. Now, what do we know about the crucifixion? Persians invented it. Romans perfected it. The Jewish historian Josephus said it is the most wretched of deaths. It, it was a death by dehydration, exhaustion, traumatic fever, suffocation. I mean, um, those who were crucified, they weren't even received, they weren't even given a, a common decent burial. Men were crucified rarely for women. If, and it wasn't reserved, it was reserved for non-Roman people. Like if the only way you would be crucified if you were a Roman, like high treason, like it was a big deal. But on top of it all, crucifixion carried a curse of, uh, there was a stigma of disgrace. Galatians 3.13 it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So Jesus took the curse for us. He became the curse, right? Before Jesus was nailed to the cross, before he was placed upright in the ground, they offered him wine to drink mixed with, with gall. Now, gall means it's bitter, right? Mark identifies it as myrrh, literally a narcotic, the soldiers were not giving Jesus a narcotic to, um, as like an act of mercy. They were trying to deaden the pain. They were getting ready to drive five to seven inch nails through his, uh, through his nerve system in his hands and through his feet. Jesus tasted the gall, but he refused to drink it, which means this. At the cross, Jesus was fully aware of what was going on. He wasn't drugged up. He wasn't hallucinating. Everything that he said, he was sober-minded. He was clear thinking, right? He wasn't tripping on some narcotic. Jesus was fully aware, and he willingly drank the cup for us. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the other brothers. I, I love that verse because that right there sums up what love really is. Love is not words. Love is action. Love is the cross. 
If you ever wonder, if you ever doubt, does God really love me? Just think about the cross. Just think about the cross. This is how much God loves you. And God knew that we were going to go our way. God knew that we were going to drift and fall into sin. But here's the beauty of the gospel. God said, listen, in the midst of you wandering away and drifting and living in sin, I've provided a way back. I've provided a way back because I sent my son Jesus to die for you so that you can be right with me. Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. 18, this um, messianic prophecy says, they, di- they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. We know that's what uh, the soldiers did. They sat down after dividing the garments and casting lots, and they, they kept watch. John 19, 26 to 27 says, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, that's um, the writer the disciple by the name of John, which by the way, um, I think Lord willing, we have one more message in Moses, unless I want to chase a few more passages, but we're going to be uh, going into the gospel of John, verse by verse, and uh, we'll probably be in John for like two years, but it's all good. It says, um, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. All four gospels tell us that there were women looking on at a distance. The men were scared straight, locked in homes. It was really only John and Peter that followed Jesus into the city. John was present. Peter was present. Peter was present at um, Annas and Caiaphas' house. What a painful day for Peter. Peter was in the courtyard warming himself. And one of the gospel writers tell, tells us that um, when, when he denied Jesus the third time, that Jesus and Peter's eyes locked. Peter was staring at Jesus, and Jesus was staring at Peter. You know, when it comes to sin and making mistakes in life, they're never fatal, they're never final. You know, we've all made mistakes in our past, but there's restoration, there's second chances. And we know that Jesus restored Peter over breakfast on the Sea of Galilee. It's a beautiful story. There are several groups mentioned um, in... um, in the Gospels, several groups around um, the crucifixion. One was fickle followers. Um, these were the crowds, the bystanders. Um, they derided him. They uh, hurled ab- abuse and, and insult at him. Um, Palm Sunday, when Jesus came in, uh, fulfilling messianic prophecy by Zechariah, I think 500 years be- be- before Jesus ever came on the scene, it was written that he would come in to Jerusalem riding a donkey, the people lined the streets, they were singing Hosanna, Hosanna uh, to the son of David, they were applying uh, title to Jesus, literally Hosanna, Lord save us. The people knew who he was, they welcomed him into the city, and then days later, they changed their mind. 
One moment they're passionate about Jesus, the next moment they're not passionate about him. One moment they accept him, the next moment they don't accept him. They were expecting a, a, a political savior, not a suffering servant. They weren't expecting someone to come and through suffering would become king. They were just thinking he's going to be king, automatic. He's coming in with force and he's going to take over. But Jesus tried to remind the disciples, listen, like my rule and reign is coming, but I first have to suffer. And they didn't believe him. So many people can be fickle. So many people can be, they're on fire for Jesus or walking with God. And then the next moment they're not. One moment they have a heart for the lost. And then the next moment they just kind of don't care. Here's the second group, religious. Religious leaders, religious people were present. <laughs> Chief priests, scribes, elders, they mocked Jesus. I mean, they said, you know, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. I mean, they looked at Jesus as he hung there, and he was crucified. If you're the king of Israel, then come down from the cross, and we will believe. Like, they're putting him to the test. If you do this, then we will believe. You know, they say, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him. You know, these religious people, it was all about their religious righteousness. They were really far away from God. The people thought they, that they had a, you know, kind of a, a, a monopoly on, on God. But they actually didn't. They were actually loading the people with burdens and commandments and all these oral traditions that are not Scripture. The oral, the oral traditions ran parallel with the commandments in the Old Testament. The oral commandments were a way to interpret the commandments. And so the Pharisees, they, they would just lock in on these things. And it was, it was all, it was legalism. It was check mark, check mark, check this, check that. If you, if you check, 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 then you can be right with God. And I think a lot of people view Christianity that way, you know? And, um, you know, I, 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 it, was, it, was, it was really good. I heard, um, you know, as, as many of you know, Tim Keller passed away. I mean, theologian, pastor, uh, giant intellect of the faith. I mean, um, Rick Warren said that he was the most winsome preacher of our generation. I would agree. Tim Keller had the unique ability, I think because he was planted in New York, he had the ability to tap in to the intellectuals and really give convincing proof evidence that, hey, Christianity is credible. Christianity uh, carries a lot of weight. Like it's, it's, it's worth investigating. But he had such a heart for evangelism. Like he was able, he just, it, was, it was a beautiful thing. And um, I watched an interview by John Piper this week. And uh, John Piper was talking about a conversation that he had with Tim Keller. And uh, Piper said, you know, it was, it was something that I, I, I really learned from him and I've never forgotten it. And he said, I learned that, you know, for people who are libertarians, they're, you know, no rules. You know, you just, you just kind of determine the course of your life. When, when they are confronted with the gospel, when they come to Christ, you know, their default mode is going to be, okay, now I got I to gotta do the opposite now. Now I've got to, like, structure my life around the rules, right? It's very, like, legalism. Keep the rules. And John Piper said, Tim Keller said, 
you have to preach and make that so clear to those new believers that it is not legalism that keeps them right with God. It's grace and faith in Christ. And so maybe if you're struggling with that, if you're like, you're struggling with legalism, you're struggling with, if I keep the rules, then I'll be right with God. Listen, let the grace of God free you. Let it free you. And that, that's what God's grace does. It, it frees you. Not for you to live, not for you to live the way you want to live, but it frees you from the standpoint of there's nothing that you can do to merit God's love. There's nothing you can do to, to make God love you more. That, that's, and that's the radical thing, right? God will never love you more. He will never love you less. We don't understand that because we kind of connect. It's, love is very conditional. If you do this, then I'll love you more. But God's like, that's not how I play the game. I love you because you're my child. You've been forgiven. And, um, and so you're free to live this, this gospel life. All right, the third group is um, uh, those who are ignorant, the Roman soldiers. So um, you have fickle followers, you have the crowds, you have religious uh, leaders, the religious elites of society, you have the ignorant, you have Roman soldiers. Luke 23, 36 to 37 says, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Here's the deal about many of the Roman soldiers, honestly, Many of them probably had no clue about who Jesus was. They probably never even heard his name before. Jesus was a Jew. So here you have Roman soldiers, professional executioners. They probably didn't even know about this man. Jesus to them was nameless. They were executing orders on behalf of Pilate. And so they did what they did. There's a lot of people that are ignorant when it comes to Christianity. I'm, I, I'm going to say this, and it may shock you. Not every person that you encounter, your neighbor, a family member, someone you work with, not every person that is in your circle of influence, your oikos, not every person has heard a clear presentation of the gospel. I know that may shock you. You might say, well, we live in America. Surely they've heard the gospel. Trust me, they haven't. Maybe they've heard bits and pieces. And this is why I think people get so, I think, because they haven't explored it, they haven't studied Christianity, they haven't looked into it, they, like they're just pulling pieces here and there. That's why their view of Christianity is so twisted. It's so warped. It's the opposite of of what we actually believe and, and how God actually calls us to live out our lives. And so there are a lot of people who are ignorant, like the Roman soldiers. They're ignorant about Christianity. So don't, don't go into conversations thinking, oh, they've already heard this before. They may have never heard it, right? And, and I think sometimes with evangelism, we think we've got to have it all packaged. It's got to be neat, got to be clean. It's got to be this pretty box gift and it's it's wrapped and there's a bow on top and then my job is to I mean my job is to like is sell Jesus I gotta sell him on Jesus maybe your job is to apologize to them that you've never shared the gospel with them 
Maybe be authentic with them. Say, you know what? I've never shared the greatest thing ever in my life with you, and I need to apologize about that. Do you think they would, do you think they would give you a hearing? Guarantee you they would, right? You know, your job is not, you don't carry the burden to convince them that Jesus is the Son of God. Let the Spirit of God do that work. But you be faithful. You be faithful, right? When the door's opened, you walk through. And it's scary. Trust me. It's like, huh, right? We've all been there. Door opens, and God's like, okay, here we go. Speak up. Share. Sometimes we take it. Sometimes we don't. But I think when we engage lost people, I think one of the things we've got to do is instead of selling them, instead of having this like bullet point presentation, like challenge them. I want to challenge you to explore Christianity because it's worth exploring. I mean, it is, it is um, the Bible has stood the test of time and um, there's something amazing about it. It's changed my life. And like, boom, leave it just like that. So simple, right? And, and create kind of a thirst. That's what Jesus did. He engaged people, right? Stories, things, life. He didn't, he didn't come and pounce on them. He didn't see people as a project. Like, okay, you're a project and I'm coming after you. And, and, you know, no. He was gracious. He was winsome. He was compassionate. He listened. He was forgiving, it, it should cause us to think differently. How, how, do we, how, how do we interact with people that are not believers? The fourth group is sinners. So in this story, you, you see um, fickle followers, ignorant, religious. Now you see sinners. I mean, Matthew says the robbers reviled them. Jesus said, as he hung on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's amazing to me. Jesus is not thinking about himself. He's thinking about them. He doesn't speak to them. He prays for them. He doesn't speak to them. He prays for them. He prays for the soldiers that, that drove the seven-inch nails through his hands and feet. He prays for the crowds that are hurling insults at him. He prays for the robbers who are deriding him. There's nothing you can do that God cannot forgive. Luke 23, 39 to 43 says, one of the criminals who were hanged, railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. I mean, at least one light bulb comes on. Okay, you know what? This is, um, we deserve this. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. These criminals, they, they were not petty thieves. They were thugs, rebels, I mean, guerrilla fighters. Both were reviling Jesus on the cross. And then one has a change of heart. It's like God opened his eyes to who Christ was. It's amazing how you can go from insulting Christ to believing in Christ that fast. That's the work of the Spirit. That's the work of God in someone's life. Like, God can do in a moment more than you can do in a lifetime. In a moment, in a moment, God can change someone's heart, someone's life. They see Christ. They embrace Christ, and their life is radically changed. 
This guy is pleading. He, he says, man, we're guilty. This guy's innocent. We're guilty. And the relationship with God always starts there. We are guilty. We need hope. We need grace. We need God's love. The thief on the cross said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today, Jesus said, today, not three days, today, you'll be with me in paradise. This notion that Jesus went to hell to pay a ransom to the enemy, to pay a ransom to Satan, is false. He did not go to hell. He did not pay a ransom. He gave his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is telling us that the soul lives on. You were made with a soul. You're not an accident. You're loved by God. You're known by God. You have a future. There's, there's, God's done something in your life. He's given you a soul. You are meant to live forever. And then you see this guy. He's pleading for mercy. You know what, he, you know what, he, you know what basically what he's saying is? My only hope beyond the grave is found in Jesus. That's what, he's, that's what he's saying. You know? I can only imagine this guy, he goes to heaven, and they're like, hey, why, why should we let you in? He's like, Jesus said I could get in. You know, I said, you know? He's not pointing to anything that he's done. He, he has nothing to point to. I mean, he is like minutes, hours away from dying. This guy is at the end. He's at the very end. He has nothing to point to. Nothing to say, I did it. I made it. This, this is it. No, he, all he can say is, Jesus said, I could go in. He, he, pro, he promised me that I would be with him when I died. Christianity is exclusive. Christ is the only way, but it's inclusive in the sense that everyone was welcome. This guy was not spiritual. He wasn't religious. He didn't live a good moral life. This guy was a criminal. He was a crook. And Jesus said, your life is not defined by your past. Your life, your identity is defined in what I say and what I do for you in this very moment. And he forgave him and he gave him new life. Beautiful story. So the question is, which one are you? Are you a fickle follower? Were you passionate about Jesus? Maybe drifted? Are you ignorant about Christianity? Or are you just religious? You know, just jumping through the hoops, right? Just doing the religious thing, checking it off. You know, you come to church occasionally. But like the gospel hasn't really like changed you. Or do you see yourself as a sinner like one of these criminals? Isaiah 53, 12 says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many. I love that. I don't, I don't know. That always gets me. He bore the sin of many. There's something about that word many that gets me every time. The sin of many. And makes intercession for the transgressors. Why did Jesus have to die? Because he had to bear your penalty. He, he paid for your penalty. That penalty was sin, debt that you owe God, and Jesus stepped in and said, I'm, I'm paying it all, and I'm paying it in full. That's beautiful. I'm paying it in full. You know, Paul was writing to the church of Corinth, 
And the verse is not in your notes, but Paul said, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is... Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I heard this story many, many years ago. And I actually heard it again this past week, Tim Keller. And it reminded me of this story that I, have, I don't think I've ever shared before. Uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse, he was a pastor, theologian. He was on the way home from the funeral of his first wife. And he was trying to think of some way of comforting his children. And just then, there was a huge moving van that passed by their car, and its shadow swept over them. Instantly, Barnhouse asked, Children, would you, be, would you rather be run over by a truck or by its shadow? And the children replied, Of course, Dad, we, we'd prefer the shadow. To which Barnhouse replied, 2,000 years ago, The truck of death ran over the Lord Jesus. Now only the shadow of death can run over us. That's good. Make sure that when you die, the shadow of death is the only thing that runs over you. Jesus said, If you cry out, if you call out, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus got hit by the truck. He got hit by the truck, the truck of sin, everything, so that we wouldn't be hit by the truck, so that we would be spared and the shadow would pass over us. And when we take our last final breath, We'll wake up in the presence of the Lord. Let's pray.